Hello everybody and welcome back to this epic Aotearoa Create a Better Future podcast and as part of this special series in the service of others, Who Dares Wins and we're privileged, uh, both Brian and I, co-founders, Brian Osborne isn't on here at the moment, he might join in a little bit later but uh, you've just got myself, Joe Hortai and we have our special guest here today, Ryan Wilson, uh, just as a by way of a brief intro, a bit of an intro about this gentleman because I never had the privilege to serve with this guy but I've heard many good things from people that I have served with about him and uh, I don't want it to come across that this isn't to make him sound like a wanker like Harry Moffat said when I introduced him. <laughs> so the reason for these intros, it's pretty incredible for me as somebody um, on the outside looking in and looking at what people like yourself has, have achieved. So without further ado, with regards to our gentleman here today, this gentleman, Ryan Wilson, former SASR operator, multiple combat tours during his service. Um, he's come close to death several times and has lost friends, both human and canine, along the way, which we'll we'll touch on and, and talk a little bit a little bit about, particularly with his canine experience and being one of the dog handlers. Through the delivery of resilience, team building, and leadership programs, Ryan prepares future generations with skills, with the skills that are needed to thrive in a rapidly changing world today. Uh, today, he is the general manager for Whippersnapper Distillery. And he has created the Whippersnapper Distillery Veterans Club. He's also created the Whippersnapper Academy and is currently in the process, or maybe it's already developed now, but currently in the process of developing a distillers course for veterans. And along with this, he also has other affiliations as the state manager, WA, for the Wandering Warriors, and is a part of the fundraising committee for the RSLWA. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mr. Ryan Wilson. Welcome, brother. All right, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. And yeah, you, you, it does make me sound like a bit of a wanker, but that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's my accent. Maybe it's because of my accent makes it sound. No, we're just not used to used to all the accolades, I guess. No, thanks, thanks for the introduction, mate. No, all good, and thank you very much for giving of your time, bro. There's there's quite a lot here um, to unpack, as there has been with many of the guests so far, and particularly with your background and what you've been able to go on to achieve. And I guess. I'd like to start, if it's okay with you, if you wouldn't mind just talking about, maybe we'll go slightly different, when and why did you decide to leave the unit, the, the, the Australian Special Air Service Regiment, after serving there for so long? What was the reason for you leaving? And on the back of that, how did you end up um, going down the path of becoming the general manager for the Whippersnapper Distillery? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So... I guess uh, my decision to leave the, the SAS, a number of factors, I mean, um, I was lucky enough to be in the regiment during the, you know, the operational tempo. Mm, it's really high, yeah. Yeah, so, got, uh, you know, I was privileged to be a part of the unit and serve with a lot of uh, good guys during that time. Uh, and then uh, things started to change into more of a peacetime 
type army and, and in the regiment and the tempo still stayed quite high. Uh, we are actually, I felt actually we were a lot busier uh, in, you know, peacetime with training and exercises yeah, right. and everything um, than we were actually when we were going away. But <laughs> it, it, it kind of changed and I think it just ran a natural course for me. I got to a point, uh, you know, I always said when I started my career that I never wanted to be that, you know, that jaded guy who, you know, when around you, too you know, yeah, coming through and they're all motivated and keen and you're like, oh, bloody hell, you know, <laughs> this is rubbish or, you know, so seeing a few of those in my early career, I sort of early on decided if I ever get to that point, like that's the time to leave. So I was getting close to that point after about, you know, 12 years there. Yeah. Probably the 10 to 12 year, 10 mark, 10 year mark. But, uh, and, and then being in a leadership role, I just felt um, I wasn't enjoying it as much, to be honest. Uh, enough. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just wanted to do something different, and I'd been studying um, MBA part time through UWA, yeah. local local university here in Perth. So I'd made a few contacts there, and and just got exposed to a whole new world that I wasn't really uh, aware of, to be honest. Yeah, and, and a lot of good guys at the time that I served with, like Harry Moffat being one, mm. left. You know, th- there was a lot of other really good mates of my era, of my Rio cycle that were leaving. So it just felt like, for me, it was a time I either you know committed this would be what I do for the rest of my life, yeah, or get out and you know pivot and try and do something different. So I decided to do that. Yeah, awesome, man. That's so cool, and and it's great to hear. And and yours, so I'll use the term not wanting to stick around or getting a bit long in the tooth, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But but it's great to know that there's individuals like you that that were attuned enough and aware to be able to be smart enough, I guess, because it does. Even today, I know of some people here in NZ where some of the guys saying, "Oh man, they've been around probably a bit too long. Maybe it's time, you know, they they should have got out whenever." And we won't, I won't name any of their names, but it's interesting that you were switched on enough to be able to recognise that. And also, I guess, the fact that you were saying that you weren't really enjoying it as much um, in terms of what you had been accustomed to, the high, fast-paced operational tempo, dialing back a little bit, I guess, into peacetime things. But during that pivot and transition that you, you spoke about, or the pivot, and you had made some contacts and you were studying at UWA, how did the distillery stuff come about? Oh, yeah, so that was probably that's something totally different, actually. Yeah. Like, a bit of luck and involved there. But I, so I was getting out and I had a bit of time on my hands, took a bit of time off before I sort of got back into, you know, work. But um, so I had some time on my hands, so I decided to email the local distillery here in Perth, which right. is the Snapper Distillery, and just I just went on their website and emailed the, you know, info email. Yep. And uh, just mentioned, you know, that i am got some time on my hands. I'm ex-military. You know, I would love to learn. I always had an interest in whiskey, like <laughs> the drinking part. But <laughs> now I thought, you know, I wouldn't mind learning how to make it and just learn a bit more about the industry. And, yep. the, you know, within 20 minutes, the head distiller and co-founder of the distillery here had replied and said, yeah, let's, wow. let's set up a meeting. Like, um, yeah, and got to know him. Uh, Jimmy McCohen, and he he's 
uh, you know, a real big supporter of the military. And I think I'm lucky in the sense, I say I'm lucky because lucky that Jimmy's a guy who recognised the skill sets that uh, you, you sort of get whilst being in the military. Yeah, um, yeah. So he's seen it straight away. And I started obviously helping in production, you know, mopping floors or, or doing whatever, which was great. I just, I like, you know, get my hands dirty and helping out there. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, he, yeah, got to know the guys around the distillery well. We got on really well. Young fellas too, like Jimmy's only 33 or something. So real, yeah. real driven, ambitious guy. And I just, you know, I love working with people like that. Yep. So, yeah, eventually then offered me a role in business development because uh, of my MBA background, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and then just recently got the general manager gig, which was, you know, um, it's, it's amazing and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, you know, the MBA helped me a lot because I knew nothing about business, but, I, you know, I'm learning more sort of understudying Jimmy and, the, and Al- Alistair, the other co-founder, you know, and, and we're lucky that we're a small business, so, I, you know, I can make a few little mistakes and cut my teeth a little bit as a, you know, general manager of a business, you know, without too much sort of ramification, you know, because <laughs> there's still a lot to learn, but, yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it, yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. And so how... With it being a small business, what's the how many staff and stuff have you have you guys got just with regards to what you guys are doing? You got the you mentioned the two co-founders. There's yourself and and yeah, sort of, and yeah. we've got about twenty staff all up. So not not nice. you know, so it's definitely a small business. But we um you know then you so you've got the staff in production. So you have got the distillers and you know, that, they you know do the production. But we um we run a cafe and a little front room. So we have a yeah, venue or uh, you know front front uh, seller door manager. Sorry, so she runs all that, and then you know we got the sales team, uh, nice marketing, marketing all that stuff. stuff. So, but with any small business, everyone sort of wears a couple of hats, which I think yeah. it comes naturally being part of the military, especially like the SAS and that as well. You you become used to uh, multiple hats, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. true. That's awesome. Oh, man, it's it's cool that. Within 20 minutes, you got a reply. Were you expecting that? Like- Not at all. No, I, I wasn't expecting much from it, to be honest. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. But uh, that's, what, that's why, yeah, I think I was incredibly lucky to, um, yeah, to meet Jimmy and to get, to, you know, get a chance to uh, be in this position because it changed my life. That, that, that okay. one meeting and that, you know, that response that he made has changed my life completely because I never would have thought I would have been the general manager of a whiskey distillery <laughs> ever. So, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, that's brilliant. So, do you get are there are there regular? Do you get to do a lot of the taste testing of the product before? Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, it's not like they ask me for my opinion. I just go and taste it. <laughs> awesome that's cool bro um and so you're actually <clears throat> this is a good part like i notice you've got there's a lot of um study and time that you spent in here and so how long did it take you because you were doing it part-time while you were serving in the unit through uwa how long did it take you to go through and complete your mba yeah it took three years uh part-time so okay. yeah that and that was a challenge in itself Mm. in that the topics were very foreign to me and it, so it was you know I was learning something completely new 
but also juggling that with full-time work uh, and not yeah. uh, being in the regiment so being away a lot yeah I did exams overseas or you know away so <laughs> just, yeah it just came down to time management I guess and and being pretty disciplined with it but yeah. um but the regiment were pretty good about it too They're pretty yeah supportive so, yeah, definitely, and that, and that's where again I have to give a shout out to Harry Moffat and um, mm. his his you know efforts in creating the Wanderers Education Program in the regiment, which is you know helping uh, SAS guys study like funding their studies. So that's you know, fantastic. It's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and just on that as well. So flowing on from that can you just speak a little bit about that wanderers what was it wanderers academy or education? wanderers education program education. so yeah i'm not sure if harry touched on it in your last uh, podcast but but basically it, it it's a foundation sort of created specifically for sas members to uh, conduct sort of further study or or you know things it could be anything really what what you want to do to kind of help you not only progress professionally in the regiment yeah uh, but also for you know to help you you know on on the way out as well so you're not sort of just you know you get out you get injured or you, or whatnot and you have to leave and you're just sort of flat-footed on an, in a new world not knowing where to go so it's not a it's not a hundred percent program that's designed. You know, you do this and then get out. It's yeah. meant to actually add value to the regiment as well. Uh, and, and there was a lot of things I learned in that MBA, uh, specifically the leadership type and management type uh, units that were incredibly valuable when I was a team leader and that back in the regiment or you know in those roles. So. I think there are areas there that where that program helps also add value while you still are serving, yeah, and then set you up to if something if you do want to get out. Mm. Fantastic, man! That's so good to hear. But yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't actually know about that, and I didn't delve into that with uh, Moff. Moff didn't speak about it either. But that's that's not uncommon. If I didn't ask him, he wouldn't have brought it up. And there's yeah. probably lots of things that I didn't ask him, so therefore he didn't bring them up. But I'm glad that you spoke a bit about that just now. So thanks for that, Ryan. Um, just on that, so even for you yourself, so you've this this creation of the Whippersnapper Distillery. So we'll, we'll, I'd like to stick with this for a moment, and then we'll work back to your time in the unit. But this Whippersnapper Distillery Veterans Club, what's that about, mate? Yeah, so I've been working here at the distillery for a while, and, uh, and I just realised. Well, I've been out of the military for a bit, and I just realised, you know, one in the army, you're working with your mates every yeah. day. You see them every day. You go away on trips, exercises, whatever it is, you, and then you come home. You probably catch up with them on the weekend as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so it's it's really your life. It revolves around the people you're working with and 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 your mates and that. And then one day you get out, and all of a sudden it's gone, yeah. just like that, like straight away gone. So that was something that I struggled with uh, initially. Was just feeling a bit isolated, I guess, and a bit. Um, yeah, uh, on your own, I suppose, like just having that cut off straight away. So yeah. I figured that there would be quite a few people that felt like that as well on the once they got camaraderie and mateship. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it's incredibly difficult uh, to maintain when you're not working there, I suppose. And, yeah. and it's not like the guys who are working 
they forget about your ending. They're just really yeah. focused on what they're doing. So that's right. So I just thought working at distillery, it's a it's a nice venue. Uh, you know, it's something we all probably have in common is good whiskey. So uh, I thought I'd start this club where any veteran, really, current serving or ex serving, can you know join up. And and you know there are those the discounts and that involves you get twenty percent discount and all that. But that yeah. that was just sort of more of an add on. But the main goal of the club was um, to sort of create an active community. So I run we run these. Uh, veteran club events probably every like four to five months and where we put on you know the food some live music the venue obviously yeah and everyone comes in for just two or three hours probably three hours you know and it's just an excuse for people to come together and sort of get that mateship and camaraderie that they might be missing just for two or three hours every now and then so awesome yeah it's we are, we've done two events so far and, and looking for the third in a, in a few months and you know it's just growing every time and we're getting more and more members and uh, yeah so that was the main intent was basically to bring people together um, whether you, you use it as a way to catch up with an old mate you haven't seen for a few months or yeah. whether you come and we've had people come who don't know anyone. And just wanted to meet some like-minded people, which, mm. you know, we all sort of are being veterans. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that's, been really, really good. That's brilliant, mate. Has that led into identifying or have you come across any experiences where uh, people that have attended those have reached out saying that they, you know, need a little bit more help or whatever or, or support? And have you guys been able to sort of guide them? Has it opened doors, I guess, to guide them towards further help and support if needed? That that's probably somewhere where we want to get to. Um, I haven't we ha- personally haven't had anyone reach out uh, yeah. asking for further guidance in that. I mean, I had a uh, nice message from one of uh, the guy's wives saying, you know, he, this is the first event that he he's been to military type or veteran event since he's been out. Like yeah. he never just sort of went into a bit of a shell. So. Uh, you know, I think it's helped people come out of that little shell somewhat. But, but yeah, ideally I want to work with um, a lot of the veteran service organisations around here locally too that, uh, you know, deal with employment, with, yep. uh, you know, welfare and respite and things like that as well. So using it as a bit of an awareness uh, night as well. So not, not so much an information night where everyone comes together and you get pamphlets and you know fed all this information i don't want to turn into that but but more of an awareness that these services are there and uh you know have these people there as well so if someone does need a chat uh they they sort of know where to go yeah nice man that's awesome that's great to hear and is that the same worth so that's the the veterans club piece and then you got the whippersnapper academy or is that is that yeah so the academy is a different thing which like uh, because when I first got out of the army too, I, I started doing some like uh, leadership consulting and uh, workshops and things like that uh, right. for corporates. Uh, so you know, I, I started to think maybe I could combine the two. Yeah. Why not? Distillery yeah. and, and then these sort of like leadership slash team building type days. So that's what the academy is at the moment. It's yeah. Combining those, so it's 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 kind of like a team building day where. You know, I try, try and impart some of the knowledge on leadership, resilience, teamwork, uh, things like that. Do some team building activities 
you know, uh, and then combine it with also a detailed tour and uh, discussion with Jimmy through the distillery yep. about about the industry and about not just about making whiskey but about the industry itself and, and being a small business and what what are the challenges and that, that they faced when they did start and what they had to go through and like how nice. they got through COVID and things like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's trying to combine the two, I guess, into <laughs> one package, but yeah. Why not? That's awesome. And just on that, how have you guys been going during this COVID pandemic phase with you guys? How's that all been working out, Ryan? Yeah, so obviously the the COVID, uh, when they went through COVID, I wasn't here in the, at the oh, district. Okay, yeah, yeah. But they did um, pivot to uh, producing hand sanitizer at the time because there was that uh, lack yeah. of hand sanitizer. So they were requested by the government to help produce hand, hand sanitizer, which they did. Uh, I think within six, seven days or something, they, they went from, it's pretty amazing actually, they went from producing whiskey to Far producing hand sanitizer. hand sanitizer. Yeah, and training up like the staff and you had you had baristas now that, you know, working night shifts out on the still trying to help, you know, and yeah. everyone just sort of adapted to the, this new role to get, through, get them through. So they were able to keep everybody employed and they got through. The hand sanitizer did help. Uh, you know, and then overnight the, the demand sort of just dried up. So yeah. <laughs> these big containers of hand sanitizer sitting around. Oh, right. But yeah, then they went back to whiskey. But the thing now is that the, the, the issue with the spirit industry, but particularly whiskey, is that uh, it's a bit of a delayed onset. So that three to four month period that they didn't produce any whiskey is coming up now next year as in that whiskey we would have made then would be yep. for sale so gotcha. we should have a sort of gap yep. uh, yep. you know, where where we made hand sanitizer and didn't make any whiskey so that would have matured and we would be selling it but so that you know you know and the benefit is we know it's coming so we can plan and yep. try and do something about it but yeah definitely our covid uh, sort of dramas aren't over and, and in fact mm. they're probably only just uh, around the corner to be honest so, yeah. yeah right and how so with you guys yeah because COVID's throwing this massive spanner in the works for a lot of businesses mm. but it's great to hear that little that brief pivot to mm. sanitizer and then back to the core of, of the whiskey making um, which is cool so you guys are right now with regards to the Whippersnapper Distillery, whereabouts are you guys, uh, or who who are your clients and stuff that you are distributing to, and how has that how has that part, or how have you played a part in that? Because I'm guessing, and let me try to give some context. So, you've got this incredible military background, you've got these experiences, you've done some academic stuff as well with the MBA, as well as some other things which I'll talk about soon as well, which I want to delve into with you, but. Um, how do you then, how did you go about creating the, I guess, networks or clients or whatever you refer to them as? How did you find your skills from the military and or the MBA transferred to helping you be able to communicate with these corporates and stuff? Because it's, I, I guess it's a different, my experience, it's been a different environment being in that setting as opposed to straight talking with, with your peers within the regiment, if that makes sense. And I guess, how did you find that? Did you struggle with it or was it pretty natural and you found it pretty easy? No, yeah, it definitely wasn't easy, I think. I think you're right that there's, there's a different sort of 
mentality, different way of communicating, I guess, in the military mm. as opposed to definitely in the corporate world. The MBA helped uh, get some of the terminology, I guess, and, and wording that, that's you know, used in the corporate world. Yeah. And, and to be honest, like everyone talks about how there's so many acronyms in that in the military, but they <laughs> yeah. just get replaced by the corporate world because they've got just as many. But uh, so, there, you know, a, a bit of that, a bit, bit of the actual language to use, mm-hmm. which the NBA helped me. Um, nice. The In terms of, I guess, talking to, yeah, in the corporate sense, I, I mean, even as a manager now, I know it's it's a lot different managing soldiers as it, as it was, uh, you know, than managing mm. civilians, I suppose. There's yeah, a lot yeah. more complexities to yeah. it, <laughs> uh, which I'm finding out, and that's a, that's something, you know, you can read a book about, but you don't really learn until you do it and get faced with those those challenges. And that's, yeah, just the way you communicate, like you said, the, the words you use and yeah. you just can't do it the way we used to do with, with each other in the military or with subordinates and stuff. And, you know, so it's it's definitely different. Yeah. <laughs> it's been challenging, but, but yeah. Yeah, man, I bet. Have you been, has uh, either either of the co-founders, have they had to um, have a chat with you quietly because they've received some feedback from some of the, some of the people that you've I'm waiting for that, actually. I am waiting, like, uh, but... Not, not as yet, not I yet. Don't know, but I'm, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> no, that's cool. Oh, that's good, man. Sounds like you're on a, on a really good path. And obviously the MBA and stuff that you've done has helped, which is great to hear. And I'm going to shoot into, so you've, you've also got a, it's got a bachelor's here, triple major in politics and international studies, Asian studies and security, terrorism and counterterrorism studies from Murdoch University. How the heck did that come about? When did you do that? Was that part of the program as well while you were still serving? No, that was before. So that was right. uh, when I was young fella, um, left school and then moved to Perth and did, yeah, went to uni. So that was before I joined the regiment. And so, right. so, yeah, I, I was at university, what, 2002 to 2006 and then, uh, oh, no, yeah, 2006. So, and, and then in that time I was in the Army Reserve. So gotcha. that's where my sort of Army career started. Yeah, and then yeah, and then I went straight from the reserves, did selection in two thousand eight, and started my first full time job was in the SAS. (laughs) That's incredible, man! So your first full time job was in the Special Air Service, and there's a story right there for for anybody listening to that. That's uh, that's a huge leap. Oh, it was an uphill battle because you know the guys like that I was serving with at the time, like you know we had ex. Grand sergeants and infantry and commandos and and then there's me. Not only not only was I a university graduate or student, like you know, I was a chocker as well. I was very reservist, so I, I had, it was a big uphill battle. But yeah, hey, actually. That's quite a good, you know, the term choco for our New Zealand counterparts here that probably don't know what that term means when, when it's it's like a sort of derogatory term, but maybe if you could just explain that for our listeners here that will be yeah. listening to it as well. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> that, yeah, well, I think that came around from like World War II, I believe, when yeah. the the reserve sort of ter- territorial army sort of in Australia was getting sent over to um, New Guinea, I think, to fight and 
Yeah, the regulars, so the AIF, the Imperial Forces or the, you know, regular army at the time just used to say they'd be chocolate soldiers that they'd melt in the <laughs> sun. So that's where Choco's come from and it's, it's been a, yeah, it's derogatory, but I think most reservists will call themselves Choco's. They take it as a bit of a badge, badge of pride as well. So, yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point because I, I I remember it was, we had some uh, that came when I was at when I was lucky enough to be at four RR before we headed over to Timor and there's some guys that came in from the reserves and yeah right. they called they referred to themselves as chocos so that and I was like what the hell is a choco like because I was new to Australia and then that's when I heard what you just shared so yeah. I know there'd be some Kiwis here listening that have been really enjoying Nick's moths they'll no doubt enjoy yours as well and your experiences and what you've gone on to do so thanks for uh, this is the first actually episode where that's come up with that terms come up so thank you for explaining that for our audience <laughs> hey and so that's quite interesting how did you so you're doing this before you joined the unit you're doing politics international studies asian studies security and terrorism so was it's hard for me to try to picture was military and i get you were in the reserves at the time but was that was a full-time military gig something that you were thinking of all the time or yeah, I, I was always interested in the military and army in particular. And, and, and as a young fella, I always idealised the SAS, to be honest. And, gotcha. and you know, almost it was like they were gods, you know, thought yeah, they were amazing. Yeah. So for me, I never really considered a full-time career except if it was going to be in the SAS. So nice. yeah. um, that's kind of why I was a choco and yeah. then, you know, uh, if if the career with the SAS didn't pan out, I didn't have to commit to a yeah yeah or something like that, which which wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be SAS or that or, or nothing. So or nothing. Yeah, that's that's, yeah. Awesome, man. That's cool. So, how old were you then when you did selection? Then, if you were in the Chocos or in the reserves and you're doing your studies, how old were you by the time you did selection? I was 23. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. yeah, still, still very young. Um, well, I managed to get to twenty three without a full time job, so that's pretty good. <laughs> that is pretty good. <laughs> Actually, I'll make sure my son doesn't listen to that. He's, not, he's nineteen. I'll be telling him, "No, you blink and you go get a job now." <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, so the um, and that's great. So I want to rewind a little bit. I think, yeah. if I can, to when you were a bit younger, because what I really found really intriguing and and actually inspiring as well was your so you spent some time in Indonesia and uh, you were studying there um, in your early 20s maybe 19 or 20 and and if, if you could maybe speak about that in 2006 obviously the large earthquake and all that sort of stuff and you were quite involved before any of the NGOs and stuff could arrive like you were already there and you were assisting um, using what knowledge and skill that you had but that's that's pretty in the deep end as far as you know from what I could tell and what I was reading about what you were able to do and you know pulling bodies out of the rubble and that sort of stuff that's quite a lot for a young for for anybody but particularly for a younger person at that time to be faced with and confronted with how was that you know what was going through your mind for you at that time when all of that happened yeah, I guess just to provide yeah some context, like how I got involved in that. I guess uh, the as part of my Asian studies major, I did right uh, uh, this program, uh, a teacher's program, it's called. But it, it was uh, you'd go and study at an Indonesian university for a year or something like that, where yeah. 
the main goal was to learn to speak the language, uh, you know. So that was why I was there. I was studying at an Indonesian university in central Java in Yogyakarta. And, yeah, it just happened, uh, I forget the day, maybe in May or something, 2006. Yeah. And, yeah, just woke up one morning. It was about, I think it was about 6 o'clock in the morning. And, yeah, just a massive shake, big, huge earthquake, ran outside and, yeah, everything just started to crumble. Um, and then, yeah, I was over within sort of a minute and then, you know, didn't really know what was sort of, well, I'd never been in an earthquake. or you know, And at the, at the time, that well, they have a, a volcano, active volcano, not far from Jogjakarta actually, Mount Marapi, and right. that was sort of kind of active. It was smoking and that, so we just sort of assumed maybe that was something that, that it had that it erupted yeah uh, but yeah but in later we sort of found out it was it wasn't that it was actually an earthquake so the, the initial reaction was a bit of obviously everyone sort of panicked a bit because at that time it wasn't long i think 2004 was the tsunami uh in thailand i think or uh the major one oh uh, the, the, the was that in bali or yeah, oh, I think it hit Sumatra and, and it hit parts of Indonesia as well. Oh, okay, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I can't remember exactly. It might be getting confused. There's quite a few. But there was. it wasn't long after there was a, a large tsunami caused by an earthquake. Yeah. So right. a lot of the locals started to panic because they were assuming an earthquake was going to come through. So everyone was fleeing the city and, um, you know, it was just madness. Mm. But after that sort of settled and, and re- realised that, no, there wasn't going to be a tsunami, then the clean-up sort of started. Uh, and, and we had a core group of Aussie uh, students that were there, so a part of the program that's yeah. probably, I don't know, 15 of us or something from all various backgrounds. And so we sort of come together and thought, what's the best way, how can we help? And, you know, we started to get involved with local uh, leaders, local areas in the, in the villages and things like that. And, go out and help, obviously, yeah, retrieve bodies or, or um, do whatever we could mm. to, uh, to help, to be honest, until the NGOs and all the other uh, sort of organisations eventually came in to help, to help clean up as well. Yeah, yeah right, man. And, and how long, over what sort of period were you guys, like, involved with all of that and helping out? How long were you guys doing that for? Yeah, probably a good month, I think. Like, yeah, yeah it wasn't until eventually, you know, the military came in, uh, the Indonesian military, uh, a lot of, uh, yeah, like I said, NGOs came in and started giving good medical aid and support and started rebuilding, things like yeah. that. But those first couple of weeks, yeah, there wasn't really anything around. So we were just sort of going out to villages seeing if there was injured people and, and ferrying them back to hospitals and things like that. So, Wow. And did you guys – oh, sorry, go. No, sorry, I was going to say, I think, uh, you know, it was – I can't remember the size of the earthquake and the number, but it was – it, it might have been around seven or something. So not not yeah. you know, massive, but the fact was that uh, the, the city wasn't built for that, and obviously, and it sort of wiped out a, a big – portion of it and I think around 6,000 people or something got killed. Got yeah. killed, eh? Did you guys have um, like equipment or anything to use to be able to help, you know, to dig out or, or whatever or will you guys just rock up and then assist whoever was there and load 
people onto vehicles and that sort of thing or yeah we were able to get a few vehicles like um little flatbed sort of trucks and things like that but no we had, yeah, right. had no real uh equipment so to speak yeah we were quite limited in what we could do but it was more just help out where you could you know and then and then um you know, it was food as well, like so helping with uh, delivering food and, yep. uh, you know, there was a lot of, stuff. yeah, food and water getting donated in from outside of the city and things like that. So keep track of that and make sure that was trying to, we we're trying to get it into the right places and, you know, yeah. we needed it. But so that was, uh, yeah, definitely a um, life-changing experience as a young fella. I bet. Mm. I bet. And did that play a part for you? I wasn't sure if I read... Right. Was that a, did that play a part for you in your decision as well to go on and join the SAs? Yeah, I think I I, I was um, at that time I was already a member of the Army Reserve that time, and I, I still always had that uh, desire to go join the SAS. I don't think this sort of changed that or affected that, but uh, it did kind of. It obviously had an impact on me in other ways, with uh, you know, especially resilience. Not really my resilience, so to speak, but what I observed from the local sort of population. Yeah. In that, you know, days after they'd lost everything, uh, you know, I saw kids playing around and laughing and carrying on and, and, you know, in front of their sort of house that was just a rubble. And then uh, the, you know, and then the parents, they just get stuck into rebuilding, you know, and they, they you give you a smile or whatever, like, and, yeah, they just lost everything, but they just they weren't waiting around. They knew there's no sort of nothing really going to come for a while, so they just needed to rebuild. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's always stuck with me that that sort of image uh, that of how to you know it's happened now. We just got to rebuild and start again. So, and I saw that quite a lot uh, through that through the area. Yeah, I bet, bro. And that's really interesting to hear you say that. Like, I. Without being there, I can sort of picture in my mm. own simple way what you're talking about and that need to, okay, it's happened, the need to rebuild and move on. And I think some of what you've shared so far, and we're going to sort of jump into some of your military service here shortly, I think some of that and just in line with what you do with the Whisper Distillery Veterans Club, with what you're building and creating there and then combining the other part, which is a little bit different with the Whippersnapper Academy and that as well, combining things that you're clearly passionate about in terms of helping and serving others, but those experiences, like you said, life-changing event for you and or for anyone. But there is that, I guess, those moments and those those times when we experience them as, as either former serving members or even current serving members that might be in that space where they're thinking, I'm not sure if this is where I still want to continue to be right now, thinking about the next step, maybe unsure about how to get there. Um, but so that's why we've felt... Uh, Brian and I felt the value of people's stories like yours and others that we've been lucky enough to have and others to come can hopefully shed some light on that. People can understand and realise that they can rebuild, that they can move forward. Um, and so, yeah, just again, just want to acknowledge you, not only for that work that you did there with the other students, I realise there are other cohort of people mm. of your cohort there, so big shout out to them as well mm. that you were you guys just sort of banded together and started helping out and doing, I love what you mentioned, doing what you could, where you could to help serve others. So thanks very much for that, brother, for sharing that. Um, I'd like to move into your 
your time. So obviously it was all or nothing for you with regards to get in into the SAS. Yeah. And then the decision finally came about and you've obviously put in your application whilst being in the reserves and you've, you've, you're now on selection. <clears throat> what was that like for you? Yeah, that was, I, I, I still remember the, I think it might have been the first day when, you know, it's like 160 or something of us in this yep. hangar. And was and that after, was that after the barrier testing, like the little mini yeah, selection? Yeah, 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 after that. And then, yeah, so it's the point where, you know, we're standing there and, and uh, you know, the point you sort of get stripped down and then, you know, told to put this sock on, put that sock on. So, yeah. Anyway, I remember just looking around, there was, you know, all these massive dudes and big, you know, muscly guy, and I just thought, what the hell am I doing here? Like, I've got no chance. <laughs> and, uh, big minute, I, they're gone. Yeah. As they were all gone, all the big muscly guys. So <laughs> Um, but no, it was yeah. It, it's obviously hard, it's challenging, you know. Anyway, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard. But um, and as you know, like that's it's just the first sort of that's just the start of your yeah. career. And yes, <laughs> you soon forget how hard that was because the next course is hard, and the next time, yeah. But um, it, yeah, it, it was a. Uh, was it what you thought it would be? Was it? Or did it meet your? I guess your expectations of it did you did you do any research before in terms of speaking with people that might have done it or or watching previous documentaries or whatever on the regiment and yeah and I guess did it did it sort of meet what you were expecting or was it below what you thought or was it better or no it was definitely not below I thought I think it was it definitely met my expectations I think I I I seem to think I was a little bit lucky. I was a little bit naive in that. I didn't really know too much about what was going to happen. <laughs> so just sort of took it as it came. And, yeah. uh, you know, in the end, yeah, and I think everyone goes through this when they're on selection, is you, you sort of convince yourself that, ah, oh, well, you know, I've stuffed that up. i stuffed that up. Oh, I'm probably not yeah. going to pass. But, well, I might as well finish. So, you yeah, know, at least I can... Yeah, I finished selection. That's my, you know, at least yeah. I can hold my head high there. So that's sort of where I've got to as well because they're very good at talent making you feel like you're the worst person in the world, <laughs> the most hopeless soldier they've ever seen. Yeah. And and so, yeah, and they do it really, really well without yelling at you or anything. But, yeah. uh, you know, so I did get to that point, but I just decided, well, I'm here. I might as well finish now. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it just shows you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes in, in during selection, and that you just have no idea. Yeah, and, and and so I got to the end without any. I think forty of us finished, and then uh, twenty five of us got selected, selected for, but, for the training. Um, yeah, which I was super surprised to be honest that I got selected. But yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic, man. And standout moments for you on selection? Was it aside from, yeah, I can, you, you just cast my mind back when you said, yeah, you're all there, you're stripped down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you see yeah. these other specimens that you look and go, bloody hell, like, oh, why am I, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> but sure. but yeah. were there any other moments of selection for you that, um, you know, just really stuck out there, whether they were good or bad or, or whatever, that just, really stand out in your mind? I think, the, yeah, 
the biggest part was probably the, um, the the individual phase where you're kind of on your own yep. and and you got to walk, you know, do do a certain amount of k's every day, and yeah, climb up these big bloody hills and mountains and things and navigate whatever. But I I actually kind of really I wouldn't say I enjoyed it because it was bloody hard work, but <laughs> being on your own and 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 that it it was that and uh, yeah, it was a lot better, I think, than the other other sort of parts of selection. I, uh, <laughs> you know, you go on your own pace. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you sort of realise how much you actually want it because you got no one there pushing you, no one else, no one beside you to guide or anything. It's really up to you. Yeah. So that that kind of phase is where you really work out if you want want it or not because it's it's you. No one, yeah. you know, you can camp up and have a rest if you want, yeah. but you might not make the case or you might not make the checkpoint. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that that was the point where I realised that, you know, I could push myself on my own and, and nice. that, I, that it was something that I really wanted, yeah. Brilliant. Now, did you, I want to ask, did you have any, um, any other nationalities on your selection other than Australians and were they made to sing the Australian national anthem? Uh... I'm trying to think now. I'm <laughs> sure, we had a few Kiwis. I'm sure. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that every Kiwi that goes there gets to have the same privilege I did and have to sing both verses of the Australian national anthem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, not many Australians would know the second verse. So that's not <laughs> well, yeah, I was surprised. I was told that, um, but yeah, yeah, that was that was, uh, that was very interesting. You know what? Did, did you serve as a DS on any of selections post your time? Did you help out and stuff? Yeah, I did. I did yeah. a couple, um, which again, like a total different perspective. Yeah. Then, and uh, yeah, uh, much preferred that than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. I actually, um, I thought of. I got to help out on one of the selections, sitting at a checkpoint, um, waiting for. Uh, candidates to come through and my plan was to 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 ambush one of those Australian members on the selection and get them to sing the New Zealand national anthem I even had it written out in the Te Māori version and then go into the English but I didn't I didn't do that oh, I seen some yeah. I saw some pretty uh tired and ragged bodies come through my checkpoint so I didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't do that plus I thought I might have got in trouble from those that were OIC of the selection itself. <laughs> Well, that would have been gold. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Hey, and then so then into uh, cycle. How was how was cycle for you? And 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 where and which? Oh no, maybe you don't need to mention what squadron you went to. Obviously, you went to a squadron. But how was cycle for you in, in terms of the the learning environment, uh, the courses that that came, and I guess that the requirement or the need for you to to absorb that information quickly but then also be able to apply it so that you meet at least the minimum standard on yeah. the cycle. Yeah. And like like we sort of mentioned before, selection is just the first barrier, like mm-hmm. the first obstacle, I guess, to, to becoming an SAS uh, soldier. Yeah. And, and whilst the other courses on Rio on cycle are – Probably not as physical. Some are incredibly physically demanding too, but not not to the level of selection. Uh, they're they're more based around skills and competencies, and so there's a, to a degree there's a lot more pressure as well and stress involved on these Rio cycles because uh, because if you you know fail a course or 
uh, yeah, you, you potentially could be RTU'd like back to your unit yeah. or, you know, and, you know, everything in the regiment you would know it's all based around reputation as well and if you, you know, it starts from Rio cycle. So, yeah, it, it, there's a lot of pressure and stress and anxiety, I think, involved yeah. in that 18 months. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, and like you said, it is like drinking out of the fire hose, like your, your steep learning curve um, and, and, yeah, expected to sort of be told something once and, and then be able to apply it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, yeah, and it was, it was incredibly difficult. You just took it one course at a time. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you leaned heavily on your, your, the guys you were serving with and the guys you were doing the courses with. You all supported each other. And that's where you become, you know, best mates mm-hmm. with those guys. Even if you go to different squadrons, yeah, you're still best mates with those guys from Rio Cycle. So, yeah, brilliant, man. And did you find it sounds like maybe maybe you did? Yeah, obviously, I think <clears throat> going through that those periods or those courses and being in those environments, I I feel like you, you know you start to, or you become very organised and and able to plan and your timings and that are, are pretty good, in terms of management or management of time and stuff. Anyway, did you find that that helped you with your studies that you then started doing with your MBA and stuff like being able to not just not necessarily the time management wise, but the ability to absorb that information and take it on quickly. Like you said, I like that analogy. It's like drinking out of the fire hose. It's just gushing out of you and you're trying to get, trying to get. Yeah. People will picture that and go, what's wrong with those guys? But how, how was that for you with regards to applying that stuff, that environment to your MBA studies? Yeah, definitely helped. Definitely uh, gave me some good, uh, you know, tactics and skills and things I learned through Rio Cycle, particularly, you know, like you said, time management, energy management. So not just putting the right time, but making sure I had the right energy levels yeah. to, to be able to commit to, um, you know, whatever the task was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and to be able to absorb the information. I mean, everyone absorbs information differently. Yeah. You know, uh, so became, you know, you learn pretty quick on Rio Cycle how you absorb information best. Yep. And, and, you know, so that helped me with the MBA as well. So having, being able to take on what it is being taught and, and using my own sort of methods to, to absorb it. Yep. Uh, yeah, definitely helped. I mean, the, you know, if you ask my message, she'll say I'm hopeless at time management, but <laughs> I mean, I think I'm not too bad, but yeah. <laughs> and just on that, so your missus that you were used to being together, she's been with you the whole time you were serving as well? No, no, I uh, no, we we've got together just uh, so she she oh, hasn't wow. had the uh, the benefit of experiencing a, a yeah, yeah partner in the military. Did, uh, so yeah, different different kind of uh, relationship, I suppose, in that context. I, I never yeah. really yeah got into a relationship, so to speak, whilst I was serving. Uh, yeah. Just, so you intentionally that was intentional by you, eh? Yeah, yeah, just the, the lifestyle was different, um, yeah. uh, focused 100%, 110% focused on what you're doing, you know, it's yeah. not just a job, it was a life, like yeah. a lifestyle, so yeah, it just wasn't something that I was sort of thinking about at the time, yeah. Oh, brilliant, man, that's it, yeah, and, and I think that's been, even speaking with people and, and my own perspective of that, I always felt that it was a, a single 
men's mm. or single person, I should say, as role, because obviously females and stuff mm. can go into there as well. But I still feel the same about it today. I mean, hats off to those that like moths, like the Harry Moffats, that are that are able to make that work mm. um, during that time. Even Nick Caldwell and that as well, and many others. Uh, but it's, it's certainly not easy, and not to, that's not to say that it's easier. Uh, going the route that you've you've route like mm. you, you've planned that out, and that's like I think that's a great plan. That's a great strategy with regards to that. Yeah, lots of respect to the guys that made it work, uh, and and yeah. probably should be more respect to their partners. To be honest, but yeah, like, yeah, uh, because Absolutely. you know, and, and just for the guys to as well to deal with that, especially having kids and things like uh, you know, we just recently had a little baby girl. Oh, congratulations, man. Thanks. So, yeah, so, you know, life-changing again. But, I, you know, I can't imagine now, uh, you know, packing my bags and going away for a few months and, and missing out on that. But yeah. guys continued, they, they did that through the when they were serving. And, and I never thought much of it as a single guy, you know, living <laughs> yeah. in life. But, uh, yeah, it must have been really, really hard for them, for those guys and, and their partners, obviously, for them to be away for all the, that time of their child's life. So Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Eh? No, definitely. A lot of, um, yeah, I, I just like your strategy, or not strategy, but the way that you, you're the headspace that you're in, because I think that's really helpful for the, you know, the, even the next generations coming through now. I think it's a great consideration for them and them hearing what you've done in that regard, I think will be very helpful as well. I wanted to ask, Training. What training did you do? So you're in the reserves. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's a, there's perhaps I guess there's this, and correct me if I'm wrong. There's this assumption, or this perception from a regular force soldier that somebody that's in the reserves has more time to train for selection, so to speak, because they're not obligated to the other things that happen in your, the regular force lifestyle and that sort of thing. Was that the case for you? And if so, what sort of training did you find you needed to focus on for you that you felt was going to best prepare you for selection? Yeah, 100% helped, like, uh, and had a lot more time than someone who would have been, uh, you know, in a battalion or in the regular army. Yeah, okay. Dealing with, uh, you know, exercises or and mm. daily daily work and everything I have to do. Like, I, you know, I was lucky enough um, to be able to focus solely on training, basically. Uh, and... Uh, you know, so the, the training I did was, uh, you know, based on exactly what they recommended, the, the, you know, the training program they hand out, the three-month program leading up to selection, and I just yeah. did that to the dot. Uh, didn't really deviate from it. Um, wow. Uh, and, 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 yeah, the, the biggest area I had to work on, I guess, was the, the endurance with heavy weights, so pack marching and things like that. Yeah, was not not have do, done a lot in the reserve. So, you know, doing long all day sort of pack marches, and lucky enough to be from Perth, so I got to you know go up and check out Bindoon and areas yeah. where I sort of knew we would be. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and yeah, so yeah, just working on that, and then just getting the equipment right because you know being a reservist yeah. as well probably didn't have best setup or you know because we never really did long pack marches and things like that. So that was useful for me to build that endurance, but also to make sure my kit was um, good to go. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. That's good. Did you have many, did you have anybody 
there within uh, the reserves unit that you're at that you could bounce ideas off or lean on and get tips and advice and stuff? That yeah, so well, well, I was doing it with a mate of mine. We both were training together to do selection, so that was handy. Or yeah, someone to do it with. Uh, but yeah, to get tips and and things off, we 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 knew a guy who was in the regiment, and he just he was a, a reg ex reg, but then came to the reserves to. You gotcha. know, train up and that, and yeah. then did selection and just got through. So he was sort of a couple of years ahead of us. So he was good to catch up with every now and then and bounce nice. ideas off and and you know get some guidance. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And how about? Uh, so I'm interested in the. And I want to ask you this question: Were they still handing out the piece of paper withdraw at own request slip when you went through? Yeah. What did you do with yours when you got it? Oh, I just put it in my pocket. I I wasn't one of those bold blokes who just ripped it up and you know started eating it or something. No, I didn't do anything like that. I just I, I didn't know what I was doing there to be honest. So I was just they, they said, put it in your pocket. I put it in my pocket. That's it. So, so, that's, yeah. Man, that's so refreshing to hear you say that because um, yeah, I remember them saying you, you, they handed out the form and said yeah, keep it in your pocket. So mm. that's where people were putting it. I, yeah, I shared with Nick before I put it there only because they were walking past as soon as they weren't looking, I got rid of it. But it's refreshing in the context of hearing you speak about so openly and honestly, oh, I, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. They said, put it in your pocket, so I put it in my pocket. And, <laughs> and I think that's important for people to understand that. Um, and the reason that I asked that question is that, yes, there's a lot of similarities with people that get through, but there's also a lot of differences and stuff as well. And there might be subtle differences and they could be very night and day differences between the, the operators and stuff that end up serving there. And that's a powerful thing. I think at least in my experience to, for people to understand that, like, cause I think there's a, a misconception that they're, that they're all the same and, you know, we're not the same. We're, we're wired similarly in a lot of different things, but we're not the same, and and that's the beauty. What I found anyway of of being in the regiment is there is that what's been your take on in terms of the people or the diversity that you've seen in your experience because you've spent a lot of time, been away on a lot of operations and jobs and a lot of training and stuff as well, and served with other SF units as well. What's been some of the standouts for you? That uh, has that been sort of similar in your experience, or has it been no? That they've been pretty much identical or, or clones of each other <laughs> no not at all I, I would agree with you that you know that there was a big diversity uh, of different types of people in the, in the regiment um, mm. and I think that's part of its strength to be honest I think uh, if we all were the same and thought the same like we you know <laughs> it just I don't know we just wouldn't achieve what we achieve I think having yeah. the the different personalities and different you know, diverse sort of backgrounds from Air Force, Navy, yeah. Reserves, whatever, mechanical. Yeah, you, you just got such a different way of thinking about problems and thinking about uh, things that you wouldn't get if we were all just regular infantry soldiers that yeah. you know, came through. And uh, but the, the strength of the unit was that you could come from anywhere and we wanted you to come from these diverse backgrounds. So yeah. then you could offer a different perspective when going forward on, on solving problems and things like that. So, and I think that was the uh, common amongst all tier one sort of SF units. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And is, do they or were they still running, or is that is it still an option for direct entry to go on to selection in the Australian one? Uh, we never did direct entry into the oh. SAS. The direct entry was for the commandos. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in my time anyway, I could be yeah. wrong if I'm wrong, if I offend <laughs> anyone, sorry. But no, in my time, uh, there wasn't any direct entry to the SS. You still had to come from a military unit. Yeah, okay, um, so either TF or RF. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and it could be, you could be Navy, Air Force. You yeah. just had, you know, we had, uh, you had pilots, F-18 pilots and all sorts of things. So Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, but... So I'm not sure at the moment either if there's any direct entry or, or whatnot. Yeah, okay. But yeah, some would yeah. say I'm probably a direct entry <laughs> soldier to the SAS. So I don't know, yeah. I was going to get cheeky and say that, bro. You yeah. sound like a direct entry. You sound like you're straight off Civvy Street and then yeah. straight in, straight into your full time job in the yeah. special air service. No, it was always a running joke. Everyone's always seen me more of a civvy than a soldier. To be honest. <laughs> It's probably just because of that chilled, laid-back approach, which you which you seem to have. Like it's and that's cool. It's it's a good thing. Um, it's very laid-back. But I I could imagine because there's people. You remind me of um, a couple of guys. Actually, one of them's out now. Wayne Weeks. Um, oh, yeah, awesome dude. Yeah, he's an awesome dude. Very chilled, laid-back. When it's time to work, it's just well. Actually, his his whole approach probably doesn't really change. But you know, it's it's yeah. he's into action and, and things are on when he's on. Yeah, yeah, I learned a lot from Wayne actually. Uh, it was SSM when I went away on a tour, and then obviously right. then he was RSM. So he was, uh, yeah, a really, really good leader. Yeah, you know. he's an awesome dude. Um, so cool. Men- mentality wise, for you, how did you develop that? You know, that grit. That, and I'm talking about in selection and cycle because it's not easy. Like, like you said, and I want to get to the dog handling stuff as well. Mm-hmm. How that came about. Ask you around that because that's really like there wasn't while I was there anyway. It was there was there wasn't a dog handling cell in the in the unit at the time. But so we'll get to that. But your, how did you develop that? Where did that come from for you to be able to have that grit and that resilience to just like. I'm not pulling off this. Like I, I, I'm either going to break something, or you're going to have to pull me off this course. I'm not. I'm not withdrawing myself. Where did that come from? How did you develop that? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think a, a big part of it was I was 23 and I was young and dumb. I don't. Know, so. <laughs> but no, I, I, I guess I've always had this. Uh, when people tell me I can't do something, it, it really just and pushes you... me to be able to want me to do it more. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, from school, going through school, you know, I was never really the brightest kid at school and, and whatnot. And a lot of the teachers there in the country sort of like, oh, yeah, you'll never be able to do uni, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I thought, well, stuff you, I'm going to go do uni now. So. <laughs> No, no, I put myself through four years of uni just so I can say, <laughs> told you I could do it. Good but, for you, uh, man. Uh, you know, and, and things like that. So if someone says, you know, oh, you'd never be able to do selection or whatever, that just really uh, made me go, well, no, I think I can. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, I, I, I don't know where it come from. Like it's not uh, – 
it, I, I just think it was the time and, and yeah, my, my age at the time, I was young and, <laughs> you know, Moe Keen and, and, you know, yeah. so, uh, yeah. Awesome. No, that's all good. That, that's cool. And it's great to hear because I I find that interesting to ask that question to people that have have done the things that, like you, like what you've done, because there's there's some similarities, but there's also quite um, a distinction between the approach. And so I like it when I hear people like yourself, they go, well, actually, I don't know where it come from. Um, whereas I've had the opposite end where there's another guy that I had the privilege to have on is like from the age of seven. He referred to, he thought these people in the SAS were gods as well. His dad mm. was in the military, so he had somewhat of an idea. And then, yeah, his dad said, well, we've got people like that in the in the army that jump out of airplanes and do all of this sort of stuff. They're called the SAS. And then that sort of triggered the the idea in his head, or oh, that's that's me then. That was his that was his yeah. comment from the age of seven. Well, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. And yeah. um, nothing else mattered. He just focused in on that. And it's sort of similar, like the mindset with yours. You can't tell me, or, you know, you can't do uni. Well, guess what? Yes, I can. And then you go and do it. And that's, that's awesome. So there's, there's similarities, but... It's, I think it's okay as well and, and it's important for our audience to understand that you don't have to have the have all the answers if that makes sense you don't have to exactly know everything uh, in terms of whether that's what's going to happen on selection what's going to happen on cycle what's going to happen in this job interview what the full requirements might be for this job I mean the information and if you have that information can and does help in, in my experience but just like you reached out, and I just want to tie this back, just like mm. you reached out to the guys at the distillery and they got back to you within 20 minutes, it's great that those co-founders could see the value and the experience that you've gained across a, a, spectrum, a broad spectrum of things, not only the high-tempo, dynamic, fast-paced, uncertain, uncertain environments, high-risk environments of the military, but also the, I don't know if balance is the term, but the willingness to step outside that and study the MBA stuff and, and add on to the studies that you were doing um, prior to that. And so it's really cool to hear your these points from your side about, yeah, I don't know where it comes from because I think it's important for people to understand. I think they look at people like yourself. I know I was expecting you before I asked you that question to share this, this amazing insight in terms of, I, I developed it through this and this is how it came about and it started with mum and dad and blah, 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 or whatever. But to hear the rawness and the honesty and the authenticity of it, like, well, I don't know where it come from. Like, it's just, it's something, there are things that sometimes we can't explain. And I think by you not being able to explain that at this time, I think helps explain it for our audience, if that makes sense. It helps, mm -hmm. the, at least in my head, the cogs are turning again. Yeah, okay. There's there's validity in that. I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to know exactly how I got the wiring I had to be able to go and do that. Whereas I could do something like that, but I'm really struggling with this. If that makes mm. sense. Mm. And people are looking at that, or might look at you and go, "But you've done this, and you've gone on to do this, and now you do, but you're telling me you can't do it." Well, it's maybe a case of I can't do it yet, but mm. I'm prepared and willing to put in the work to to get to mm. it. So. Man, I appreciate that. That's just what I was taking um, from the stuff, the way that you've explained or shared it there, because, yeah, it's hard to explain all of that sort of stuff. I know it is for me anyway. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the dog handling and becoming a dog handler. So you and your family, you and your your wife, are you, you married? Partner. Partner? Yep. So Thank your you. partner with a young daughter, four months old? Yep. 
Awesome. And you got your retired combat dog. Uh, is it Kenny or? Kenny, yeah, yeah. Kenny. So Kenny, yeah. can, you, can you talk us through um, how that came about, how the you becoming um, one of the dog handlers within the unit, um, how that came about for you? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, I've always been interested in dogs. So I grew up in the country and that and always had dogs around. But to be honest, it never really occurred to me to, to pursue that specialty in the regiment uh, until – uh, it, it was a mate of mine who's out now as well, Matt Hart. Uh, he's the one, he'd just done the course and uh, he, he got his dog Odin. And, you know, so he sort of introduced me to it and, and said, you know, this is probably you know, good, good specialty for you. You know, prior to that, and this was, I'd already been in the, the regiment for a while actually. Prior to that, I was a sniper and done a few tours and that. So, yeah. Um, but I was never, I was sort of volunteered into the sniper realm. I, it was day one on, uh, day one when you, when we got to the squadron and us, right. three, yeah. four of us straight off Rio into the squadron and they said, right, user on sniper course. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, when? Well, now. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that was it. So then I began my mediocre career as a sniper and, yeah, I you know, I enjoyed some of it, but my heart was never really in that. I was never one of those typical gun nuts that like the yeah. sniper specialty sort of attracts. Yeah. So I was still sort of trying to find where I fit in as well and what specialty was really uh, you know, I was passionate about. Yeah. And that's when Matt introduced me to to the canine sort of cell and, and what was on offer there. Uh yeah, so that's how I sort of got introduced to it. I never right. Um, so even on my first tours, I know the dogs were there, yeah. Um, but I never really had a lot to do with them. And you know, have Mark Donson and that there, and mm. uh, with Quake, I think, or Devil, sorry, Devil. Was it? Was, uh, is he one of the handlers as well, Mark? He was, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, but to be honest, as a rookie on your first trip or whatever, I was just worrying about not dying and not like. <laughs> Not, not messing up, yeah. Yeah, not messing up. That's the biggest thing. I was like, yeah. oh, that's probably if you're going to prioritise it, not messing up would be first, and then not dying would be below. Because yeah. I'd rather, yeah, not yeah. mess up. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that that was a busy. Yeah, you don't want to. And, and you know, all jokes up, but you don't want to let your team down. You don't want to let your yeah. mates down. You want to, and you know, you've done all this training. You want to make sure you you actually can do it and capable. And so. Yeah, so I wasn't really sort of focused on the dogs or anything then. It wasn't until uh, I think it was my last tour, and uh, I still I wasn't a dog handler then either. I was I went over as an assaulter and um, was sort of given an introduction to a guy, Sergeant Jay, because he's still serving. Yep. Um, and he was running the dogs over there. He had two dogs, uh, Jacker and Fax. Uh, but he didn't he was just on his own running them so mm. I'd sort of mentioned myself and another guy in dogs and doing the course so yep. we sort of did some OJTs with him throughout the deployment nice yep uh, and, and that was sort of the start yeah wicked man and and so how how long had you been did you become so you, you started that there the OJT there on that on that particular task and then it just carried on for and for how long yeah so 
Well, went back uh, from that tour and then did the course. Got got it. Got my dog. I was about yeah. to say got issues. With my dog. So got, <laughs> got, <laughs> habits. Habits. Yeah. Got uh, got Kenny. Got introduced to Kenny, uh, which is oh, I could do a whole podcast on that dog. But um, yeah, and then was a handler with him. We were a dog team for four years, uh, and then. Then I went up to the dog, canine cell as the 2IC up there right? And, um, for a couple of years, yeah. How, and how old was Kenny when you got him, when you got issued your dog? <laughs> <laughs> it, was about, it was about 18 months, I think. 18 yeah. months. Wow, so, far out. Um, yeah, he was, a, he was a funny dog. Like, uh, yeah. you know, anyone that knows Kenny knows he, he's uh, a bit of a character, um, you know, known for – running out front but looking back and running into trees and <laughs> doing all these stupid things, you know, and, and forgetting, you know, when he wants to get out of the trailer, out of the box, but forgetting he has legs and just sliding out <laughs> like a seal and did all these strange things where even the team would be there and like, what's wrong with your dog? What have you yeah. been teaching him? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So... Um, you know, funny dog, and but he could turn it on when he wanted to. You yeah, know, he was a, had a really good bite and was a real uh, vicious dog. But yeah, uh, but just a yeah, strange dog. <laughs> but they say in dog handling, they do say that you know the uh, handler, you know, his personality goes down the lead. Uh, well, I don't know. I think it's sort of going both ways with us. But yeah, we were a perfect match, and everyone always said because we we're both a bit, bit, you know. Uh, I don't know what to say, but yeah, we're both a bit different, a bit, you know, laid laid back and goofing around. So, yeah, we're a perfect match. That's awesome, man. And so you got him at 18 months, then you're you're serving and working with him for four years uh, whilst in in the regiment. And then, um, and and I'd like to come back and, and have you speak a little bit more about Kenny and the relationship that's built during that time. But then, so at the end of the four years, I'm assuming is that the time you're then getting out? No, nah, no. That I went oh. up to went up to the canine cell then. So I left the squadron and went up to the canine cell as a, a as the two IC to run right. the course and yeah. and things like that. Develop okay. dogs. So that time then, yeah. So I handed Kenny over to another handler from the same troop. Oh wow! Because um, that's usually a dog will have a couple of handlers in their lifespan. Okay. Um, but. Yeah, How was Kenny, that, mate? Was that hard? Was that a hard thing for you to do, or it, it was just like? It's hard. It's hard. No, it's hard for any handler that does it. Yeah. Um, but the, the thing is, do it with. Uh, he was a good mate of mine, and uh, from the same troop, and yeah, so yeah, it was like, hands, yeah, you knew he was in good hands. But he, he sort of uh, he only that only lasted for about six months anyway, and then Kenny got the um, had sort of like a back injury from years of work. Yeah, and you know he could still work. For probably a couple more years, they said, but then his life after would be significantly deteriorated. So, yeah. so they said, otherwise, we'll retire him now and he'll have a good life outside. So, and all credit to the regiment and the, and you know, that's the mentality they have with dogs as well was, all right, we'll retire him now so he's got a good life outside. Awesome. So, so yeah, I ended up taking him home and um, yeah, he's still going now and digging holes in my backyard. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's awesome. And how did how did that experience? I know you said you grew up with dogs and, and out in the country and that sort of thing. But 
I'm and I'm only like guessing here just from the outside looking in that the connection or the bond or the relationship because now it's not just worrying about yourself or, or not wanting to mess up and not wanting to let your mates down but I would imagine you're also not wanting to let your the dog that you have down and you're not wanting to let that thing even though it's I guess part of its purpose is to be at the forefront to sort of help lead, uh, protect be the eyes and ears and protect people like yourself and members of your patrol but it's still not easy because they've become part of you, you know, that connection down the lead from yourself to the, to the dog and then the dog back to you. How, what did that teach you and, and how did you feel having, I guess, to, to, in my mind, was it an extra responsibility that you felt? And, uh, and if so, how did that make you feel? How did you approach each task? Yeah, definitely was an extra responsibility and, and that's, uh, I think, every handler will will attest that uh, you know it, it's it's hard to manage both mm. being uh, a part of the squadron and and live um, you know uh, still being able to be a part of the squadron and living up to your expectations as a team member yeah but also you know maintaining and training this dog capability in your dog and making sure the dog's okay and 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 that as well it's a fine balance because yeah, it was hard. Often, as handlers, we, we sort of had to do everything during work time, like as in, you know, go to the range, keep up all our mm-hmm. other skill sets, and then yeah. before and after work, we'd be training the dog. So it was yeah. a, yeah, dog handlers had a huge workload, I, I think. And, um, you know, and, and just going back to actually skill sets, so yeah. I found the dog course one of the hardest courses to actually uh, complete. Yeah. Now, I rocked up after having some good OJTs overseas, some good experience with dogs. You know, I sort of rocked up thinking, oh, yeah, here we go, another course. Like, this yeah. is not too bad. I'm, I've got a bit of experience. I'll be all right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I was wrong. 100% wrong. <laughs> it was, like, it was a very steep learning curve and it was a, a big eye-opener because... You know, not only now you're trying to develop another skill set yourself as a handler, now you're trying to also develop this a dog and, and get the dog to, you know, to do what you need it to do. do. What you want. And then the dog's looking at you and you're like, oh, sorry, but I don't really know what's going on either. But, you know, so it's, uh, it, you know, it was very challenging and, and the dog's got a mind of its own, you know, so it's not like, yeah. Tell it to do one thing and it's going to do it. Like you know, it, they do sometimes, but not all the time. And then, yeah, it, and also there's a course where it was very. You had to be very adaptive in your mind and very open and to new ways of doing things. And mm. in terms of training, because you know, whilst we had a, a manual, had a you know, a, a sort of the way to do the course and you had to tick all these boxes, you know, like a typical army course. <laughs> but to be honest, every dog was different and every hand was different and every situation was different. And then, mm. so, you know, to do what I did with Kenny, I might have to do something that was in complete opposition to what we were taught on the course and gotcha. vice versa or with someone else. So it, it, it was, a you know, sort of like a, here's a guideline, here's what a best sort of practice, so to speak. But... You might have to do the opposite, like type yeah. thing. You know, you might have. You got to think for yourself and come up with a solution. So, 
it was a very challenging course and um, yeah, a real eye-opener to, especially to the way I thought about problems and the way, you know, the military are sort of starting to realise, especially a lot of military courses are like, do this, do that, if this happens, do that, you know, like a look yeah. at the little gooey thing and yeah. all the sort of solutions are there in front of you. Um, but this was very much in line with the greater sort of special operations mindset or SAS mindset in that, yeah. you know, complex environment that not the same input is not always going to result in the same output, you yeah, know. True. So yeah. it, it, that was sort of the beginning, you know, my expanding my mind, I suppose, as well. So, wow. uh, you know, and with dog handling as well, you kind of had to be all over your other skills really well, so your CQB and things like that because yep. that's bloody complicated and complex on its own. Like CQB <laughs> is very complex as well, like, you know, <laughs> That's a similar realm where it's, well, here's some guidelines, but it's different every time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. And then, you know, so you, now you've got to do that with a dog on your hip who's, you know, sees a doorway and then wants to go <laughs> and pulls you off balance and, and then the team's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, there was a lot of challenges involved with dog handling, but very, very rewarding too. Mm. Oh, beautiful man! That's that's so cool to hear. Very very interesting for me because yeah, I love dogs. Um, obviously, never had that wasn't happening while I was there, but that would be very cool. And I guess my question is, what did that teach you? Did did it help you? I guess learn anything maybe different about yourself, or was there anything that surprised you being in that environment, being involved? With, with the dogs helping to run or two I see for the courses and having one so closely attached to your hip on different different jobs and different tasks, whether that be operational or training, did that teach you, did you identify or start to find anything different about yourself? Yeah, I found those years uh, I found a lot about uh, about myself, I think. Yeah. Um, definitely patience. I always thought I was quite patient and quite laid back like yeah. you know yeah and but dogs can really push your patience i think yeah. <laughs> so i really got you know realized that there is a point there where I, you know i need to um work on my patience as well and and and, and you know sort of remain calm and yeah <laughs> you know in the dogs they say it's mechanical not emotional like say mechanical don't be emotional you know and Right. It's really hard to not be emotional. So, yeah. Um, That's cool. Yeah, I learned that. But I think the biggest learning period for me was actually the couple of years I had up at the dog cell as right. in the 2IC realm. And that yep. um, was big for me in terms of leadership and management. Mm. Uh, and, and not, not you know, really the dogs per se they were pretty easy to manage to be honest it was the people that were the difficult <laughs> part and, and so that was that was a really good because that the, the position you're in up at the dog cell is trying to you're not really in anyone's chain of command but you're trying to facilitate and coordinate multiple capability points over different squadrons um, you've got air force support people that are you know they are under your command yep uh, so you know, how I then interact with an operator from a particular squadron would be different to how I interact with the Air Force person. And gotcha. then, you know, it, you had to really understand who you were dealing with and yep. what what sort of 
mechanisms worked well and what didn't and because it's just all different, you know. Yeah. So that was a real eye-opener and that was good for my time management skills and uh, like planning and things like that, like planning courses and planning training exercises, and, which like everyone, everyone in the regiment does and everyone in the army would be really, really good at, anyone who's playing courses and stuff. It's, yeah. Like project management, right? It's just it's uh, amazing, and that's so I got a lot out of that. Pretty much like a, a good program, program, sorry, project management type uh, skill set. Yeah, which I think is important to acknowledge. I think it's important to acknowledge a lot of people in the army have that skill set, and the military, wider military actually, but don't have any proper formal qualifications in it. Yeah, but. I'd be happy to, you know, anyone with a military background who's had some sort of leadership role to manage a project because that's what they, you know, you do. So th- that that was the biggest takeaway, I guess, from my time up there. And then, and then now also looking back, going, well, okay, there's a lot of people in the military as well now that have these skills but don't realise how valuable and how useful they are on the outside. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man, that's a great point and great insights too. And I, that I'm probably going to come back to some of the stuff that you just mentioned there. But before I forget, lose this my train of thought. Yeah. What are some of the qualities that? Because I don't imagine that anybody can or is cut out to be a dog handler. That that's just my take. Just like not everybody is a dog lover or animal lover yeah. or, or cat lover, that sort of thing. So within the unit, <clears throat> what sort of because you were involved in that cell and was it two IC or were you oh us like overall? Two, in I, was, I was two IC. Yeah. Two IC. I had a sergeant above me, yeah. Okay, gotcha. And what sort of I guess qualities were you guys or would you look for in terms of somebody becoming a handler? Was it more the expressed interest of the individual coming to you guys and the dog saying, going, hey, I, I love dogs, I, I want yeah. to be a part of this, or was it you guys had identified people or was it a bit of a combination of both? It's a bit of a combination, but I guess first yeah. first point would be that they're a good bloke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, same thing on selection <laughs> and, you know, you just want yeah. to work with good blokes, you know. So, yeah. But, no, I mean, they, yeah, they had to be, like I said, good at, Probably have a little bit of experience already in CQB and assaulting. It's difficult yeah. because a lot of the specialties they wanted you to get early on in your career, and we're as the dog cell trying to say, well, no, we kind of want you to be a little bit more experienced and and comfortable with your uh, with your own individual skills yeah. before you come and do this course. So a lot of people would then specialise elsewhere because they could do it earlier. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, so there was that, you know, like I said, a definite sort of mindset, open or growth mindset, if you want to yeah. use that word, but uh, in that it's not fixed in one way of doing things, but being able to see that, okay, this is the way I was taught or told to do something, but in this circumstance, I think I should do the opposite, you know? Yeah. But having that sort of mindset, um, yeah. And being able to operate independently because often that's what you're required to do in the troop yeah. uh, and, and motivated, like you said. So people coming forward and volunteering was the best because, you know, that's what you wanted was motivated individuals who and then knew that this was a, a lot of extra work 
Uh, and often after hours or weekends, we did weekend yeah. work because because you had to clean the kennels. No one tells you that, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that you're up five in the morning on a Sunday cleaning kennels and you know Surprise. dog crap out, and you're like, how did I get here? No, I don't have to tell you that, but. Uh, yeah, so you know, you need someone who's who's kind of like that, you know, yeah. independent, uh, motivated, and and does have a passion. It really is a a skill set that requires you to have a passion. Yeah, for, for the like dogs it. and yeah. Awesome, man. And how long, if you're if you're able to, how long is the course? How long is the course duration itself to become a, a handler, like the official course? Yeah, it's only six weeks. Um, only wow that's which well i say only because i think the amount of information and and definitely (laughs) banned it like i think the the militarized yeah we can can get it yeah a year's worth into six weeks (laughs) yeah 100 yeah and it just it takes it takes a long time to bond with your dog you know and to develop this trust yeah Yeah. so six weeks is really a short time i think in the dog world yeah and then, yeah, yeah, no, that makes that makes complete sense now that you've explained that and, and said, oh, yeah, the military's grabbed the course and, uh, yeah, <laughs> condensed it. So then straight on the end of that six weeks, you then get, you receive your dog if you pass, if you qualify, and, and that, is that how it works? Well, normally you would, you would probably get the dog, like, because you have to do the course with a dog. Okay. So yeah. you'll, you'll get given your dog prior to course. The dog will be at a certain level. That would be the, the cell's responsibility, the canine cell, to make sure the dog's at a certain capability already yeah. and then uh to, to progress on course with the student wow. and how many because that's only six weeks long i don't imagine it's a big course is it small numbers no very small yeah very yeah small. yeah okay cool <laughs> awesome yeah that's so cool and, and just I, I guess i really wanted to delve into that and happy to speak about it a bit more because i think you know that's that in and of itself is is exciting. I think for people, the next generation come through. Wow, they got dogs! Like you know, I love yeah. dogs or whatever the case might be. And to have opportunities like that, these little, I guess these little things and shifts and changes. And obviously, the unit evolves, and people like yourself have come through, and it's evolved to even bigger and better things now. Of what it what it has done, what it does now, and what it will do in the future. And that's a testament to people like yourself that have been there and then future generations that will come through, which leads me to some of the stuff that you've been doing. Are you still doing the resiliency, team building, leadership program stuff in terms of preparing those future generations? And just, just on that, when you're, when you're speaking about and you're delivering those programs, when you're talking about the future generations, is that specific to military or is that, or is that just a broad range of future generations wherever they may be wanting to go, whether that's business, startup, whether that's military, wherever? Yeah, it's a broader, broader range, like I said. Because um, yeah. when I got out, I was also working at this, um, an economic foundation there, uh, which was, it's like an a economic think tank, I suppose. Um, right. And I was just running the operations there, so operations manager. And part of that, I was... There are a lot of young, um, young, young scholars come to the foundation and do scholarships and, yeah. and whatnot. So I was exposed and had access to, uh, I guess, the young generation and the cream of the crop. They were driven, motivated uh, university students, whatnot. So yeah. um, started to sort of deliver some leadership and, and style training to them. 
and also uh, do some one-on-one coaching and things like that, nice. mentoring and stuff. So I, I still sort of do a bit of that because uh, nice. I enjoy, yeah, sort of helping out, helping especially young people, young generation coming through. And, and that's that, that's not military related at all, to be honest. But um, yeah, so so really wherever I can, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, wicked man. That's cool. Very cool. Um, I wanted to speak more. I'm just looking at my notes that I've got here. Yeah, we spoke about that. Now, your what are the future plans for for where you're at? Obviously, you're GM with the Whippersnapper Distillery, but what else is on the horizon for you? Because you're tied in with quite a lot of things, obviously the Veterans Club, the Academy. You've got other affiliations as the with the state manager for WA with the Wandering Warriors. Actually, that would be before I talk about what's what's next. Mm. What's the Wandering Warriors? Could you speak a bit about that for those that may not know? Um, and and what part or, or how, what's your affiliation to that and what are you guys doing at the moment in that space with the Wandering Warriors? Yeah, no worries. Wandering Warriors was uh, created a few years ago, and it's it's a non-for-profit, like a veteran support organisation designed to help uh, ex-serving, uh, well, it initially was ex-serving SAS members, and now it's expanded to SO Command, so any members yep. who have served in SO Command. Yeah. Primarily, they have four pillars that they sort of... Um, Supporting education, employment, respite, and welfare. So, awesome. the biggest one being education. I think so. It's it's kind of a uh, and Harry Moffat was heavily involved in the establishment of this uh, organisation as well. Yep. And it's kind of it led from the Wanderers Education Program, which is the one available to soldiers still serving. Yep. Is kind of now the one available to those who are already out and want access to study or, uh, you know, and also helping out employment and things like that, like if we have connections or putting people yeah. in pathways into certain areas. That's Predomin- predominantly Wandering Warriors has been established in the East Coast, so they have some good uh, connect- uh, relationships with universities over there and, and are right. servicing a lot of uh, ex-Sokoman members over the East because obviously a lot of people who serve here in Perth as well are from over east, so they when yeah. they finish their service they go back. Yeah. But I was I'm from Perth originally, so well from WA, so and I know there are a few still guys still around. There is still a big ex command population here in Perth. So I wanted to really raise the profile of Wandering Warriors here in WA. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I approached Quentin Masson, who's the CEO yeah. and uh, yeah and Basically, went through a real rigorous selection process. <laughs> where he said, "You want the job?" I said, "Yeah, I do." He said, "All right." That was pretty much it. But <laughs> no, no. I mean, um, it was you know there was really, it, I guess, because the units here, um, they didn't want to step on anyone's toes initially here. Uh, you know, so it hasn't developed. Uh, as much on the west coast as it has on the east coast, on I suppose. East coast. So, okay. so that was my goal: is to get involved, was to then try and raise it here in the west coast. So, currently talking with a few with a few of the universities to try and just create scholarships Brilliant. and that for guys who are coming out and want to yeah. maybe uh, start some study in whatever area or field they they sort of want. Yeah. 
Man, that's awesome. Oh, I missed one. It was education, employment, respite. And what was the fourth? Oh, and welfare. Welfare. Yeah. Awesome, man. Far out. That's such a great initiative and, and really pleasing to hear that there's people like you. I remember Massa. So Massa and I were on the same selection and cycle, Massa. Oh, so, um, yeah. yeah, he's an awesome oh, dude. And then we yeah, went yeah. to the same squadron. So he's yeah top man. But I haven't connected with him for a long time, so I'll have to – I'm connected with them on LinkedIn, but um, that's about it. I haven't caught up with them for a while, so I'll, I'll touch base with them. But that's awesome. That, those are, those are, that's so good to hear because those are, you know, really key parts for not only the individual like yourselves or the the, the people that have served in those units or that have that have served as part of. And that's great to hear. It's opened up to those that have served as part of So Command as well, which is mm-hmm. awesome mm-hmm. Um, because there are. There are gaps and there are, I guess it's hard, like you mentioned right at the start when we started this conversation, when you go from being in those environments to then all of a sudden you're almost cut off and now you're isolated and you don't have the brothers and stuff around you. Um, and it's not like you said, it's not that they've forgotten about you, it's just that you know they're, they're still operational, they're still working, they're not going to just start talking about the jobs and stuff that are coming up and we understand why yes. but it, it, it's hard for the individual um, so that's cool I'm really pleased to hear that that stuff is happening is there any so and then on on top of that you're also on the fundraising committee for RSLWA how's all that going yeah it's good I I sort of uh, joined the committee with the intention that RSLWA, especially here in West, well, RSL, especially in WA, has, you know, it's got this reputation of being, uh, you know, for old, the old and bold type people, uh, old Vietnam vets, and yeah, yeah, not really, you know, every time you mention RSL to someone, they just think straight away, you know, old people sitting having a beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot of good potential there with RSL a lot of they do a lot of great stuff in the welfare and advocacy sort of areas uh, and I think there's a lot of great services there available for young contemporary veterans um, yeah. we just need to reshape and re, rebrand RSL I think yeah to be more um, suitable to, oh, yeah. yeah more suitable yeah more suitable. like within the time we live in basically yeah. um, uh, so and, and you know Perth is unique in that we um, we don't have pokey machines, so our RSLs uh, aren't like they are on the east coast. Um, <laughs> so it's it's different, but so it's more I think it's core more related to the core ideal and, and values of the RSL as yeah. it was originally created. Yeah, nice. So I like that, and I think that's great, and I think. You know, it just needs, you know, we can all sit back and say, oh, RSLs for old people and complain and that, but until younger gen- like generation of veterans get involved, nothing's going to change. Mm. So that's why I sort of want to get involved. And, and um, the RSLWA have also just built and opened a, an amazing, I think it's like seven-storey building in the CQB, uh, Anzac House in, oh, yeah. in in the city there and it's an amazing venue it's got an amazing bar it's got all these uh, you know function rooms and yep. uh, hot desks and, and places you can have meetings and all sorts of things and it's oh, a great right. venue yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's also uh, got medical facilities so you know dentists doctors you know psychologists it's meant to, you know, be this one-stop shop where you yep. know, veterans go and you've got everything you need. So it's, it's an amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I just think it's not, 
it's not being utilised to its full potential. And I think there's it's the, the a lot of people I talk to are like, oh, I didn't even know that was there. So it's a uh, it, it's getting the the voice out there, and I think changing RSL to be more in line with contemporary views and veterans is probably yeah. one way where we start. Yeah. Man, that's awesome. That's great to hear. That building sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Whereabouts yeah. is it, did you say? It's on St. George's Terrace, right in the city. Well, it's prime, right the prime real estate. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. And that's that's funded by – how was that? How did that come about with the building and all that sort of stuff? Was that all through the fundraising, governments? What was the – Yeah, both. So government's yeah. funding plus uh, RSLWA fundraising Man. as well. Yeah. Yeah, that place sounds amazing. That would be. I'd love to see that. See that place, and I think, like you said, there would probably. Yeah, I'm sure there'd be lots of people that didn't know, like you're saying, didn't even know that that place exists. Um, especially if it's been underutilized and maybe not promoted as as well as what it could be by the sounds of things. Yeah. Wow. So, what for you, uh, Ryan? What's what do you see as the, the next few steps or what's next in the horizon over the next, say, 12 months for you in terms of what you want to achieve, whether that's from a personal perspective, whether that's from the family, whether that's from the business with Whippersnapper Distillery? What are some of the things that you're working on <clears throat> that you're comfortable enough in sharing for our listeners to hear in terms of whether that's your own personal growth, whether that's business, family, relationships, whether that's with Wandering Warriors, whether that's – because there's a whole bunch of stuff that you've got yeah. so you can pick and choose. <laughs> and, and what's – so what's your plans for the next 12 months, mate? Yeah, so I guess with uh, with the distillery, like obviously, cons- you know, continue to work here and consolidate my role here as a general manager and continually improve. How long have you been GM for? So brand new. Really? Yeah. Man, and so prior to that, you, you've been working on the ground, working on the floor, working and got into the stage where you're at now as the GM. Yeah, I, well, I was uh, in a business development role prior to that. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, you did yeah, say yeah. yeah. Man, awesome. Yeah. They moved me out of production pretty quick when I started getting away with everyone. Getting away with yeah, too yeah. much testing. Started tasting too much. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, Wicked, man. Yeah, so... So, yeah, moving forward with that, just consolidate and, and, you know, hopefully, obviously, continually improve uh, myself and also the organisation yeah. as the GM. And, and you know, we're, we're exp- planning to expand shortly, so there's a lot of work going on there. Uh, also, with the distillery, I guess, in the process of developing that distillers course for veterans as well, which is something I'd like to see in the next 12 months uh, come to fruition, I suppose. So, and that's that's something that, you know, I'm going to lean heavily, obviously, on the production guys and the distillers and Jimmy himself to come up with the content. But the idea being that, you know, this is a uh, sort of a tangible skill set that veterans can get whilst transitioning yeah. in a legitimate industry. But unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of luck when I approach DBA or certain organisations because as soon as you say alcohol's related, they, oh, okay. they, yeah, yeah. they don't want to be involved. Yeah. But it's a legitimate industry. Uh, yeah. and, you know, this industry is going to grow soon as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's a good skill set. And, and so if people want a career in that industry, then, you know, that hopefully this course will set them up well. Yeah. But it's also a course that you might not want a career in, spirit manufacturing but you 
it's more of the psychosocial style, type side of things where you just not sure what you want to do, but you're transitioning. You want to get out, and you come and do this course with a bunch of other vets, and it's yeah. it's fun. It's like you know, it's a good fun course. So yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. that's the plan with that one. Awesome. Uh, yeah, in Wandering Warriors, yeah, like I said, hopefully in the next twelve months, I have some. We have some scholarships going and some recipients there, with guys, guys and girls studying. Uh, that would be nice. Get going yeah. in the next twelve months. And Definitely. yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and, and on a personal note, like, just, uh, yeah, looking forward to. You know, my child growing up mm. slowly and, you know, going to, you know, putting time, you know, I've got a lot of things I want to do, obviously. Yeah, like a lot of I can tell, yeah. me in all different directions, which, you know, I've decided that's what I want to do, but I also need to balance and make sure that I have a good amount of time for my family as well, which, you know, is, is often a challenge. Yeah. But so I guess having that good work-life balance would be a good goal in the next 12 months as well yeah (laughs) yeah yeah oh man awesome bro so good to hear um man you've you've definitely got a lot on your plate a heck of a lot on your plate and on your schedule and it's um it's really inspiring to see and and for me on a personal note if i can just take some time really just to acknowledge you uh, at this moment Ryan um, for the for the things that you've not only achieved and done but also what you're continuing to achieve and how you're continuing to grow and develop and build yourself it is inspiring whether you, you know I know it's it's not a comfortable space for people like yourself and moths and all that so and people that have sued in those units to here and and I love what Moff said. He goes, "Oh, we're in danger of us slapping here, but you know we don't do it enough and all that sort of stuff." Um, but I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of merit in what Moff shared. Just in those few words, they really struck me. And and so I I just really want to take some time here and just acknowledge you with regards to not only your service that you've provided and given um, to the Australian Defence Force and to the people of Australia, to those countries that you've been away and served in, and especially to the brothers that have been by your side over that time, um, and not not making, not letting them down, uh, not making a mistake and not dying, that's great, um, but also just, you know, the sense of humour and the humility that comes through when I'm listening to you and as I've listened to all the boys and, and had the privilege of speaking with the boys as they've spoken about their journeys and what they've been doing. Um, the congratulations on not only being a father to the four-month-old, but also three weeks I didn't realise as the general manager for Whippersnapper, so that's huge, mate, that's awesome, and it's just another you know, another feather in the cap in terms of your growth, your journey and what's happening. Wish you all the best with regards to consolidating your role as a GM and that distillery course. So hopefully that can gain some traction and get the support because, yeah, there's a lot of value and merit in that. And I know that uh, the guys, particularly from, whether they're from the unit or from the military, will, will love to jump on that course. <laughs> a lot of inquiries already done. <laughs> I bet you'd be inundated <laughs> with inquiry. When's that course starting, bro? So, um, so that's great. The scholarships with the – I really hope that kicks off as well, um, that you have some success there with the unis and that with the Wandering Warriors. And just the, everything else in general in terms of what you're doing, it really highlights for me anyway – and I know it will for our listeners because many of our listeners here in the NZ have been have spoken about they've been really drawn to this series in particular to the stories to the individuals like yourself, the way that you speak, what you speak about, what you're involved in now, and the way that you still continue to serve. So the whole 
preface for <clears throat> this particular podcast or this series around in the service of others, who dares wins. Um, man, for me, just hearing your story and many others is just a, a massive example, mate, of of the great work that you've not only done but continue to do. So just want to thank you for that work that you've done and that you're continuing to do. I guess my, my last question before I leave it to you to you can shout out and acknowledge and maybe mention anything that you might want to, whether it's about the distillery, whether it's about Wandering Warriors or, or whatever. Um, I'll, I'll let you wrap up with some final words, but I'm really keen to hear from you, what does the the slogan, the catchphrase, the tagline, whatever people want to call it, who dares wins, what does that mean to you and how does that impact or play a part in your life today and going forward? Yeah, I've actually put a fair bit of thought into what who dares wins mm. actually means because because it's not something that we actually discuss a lot yeah. in the regiment, to be honest, surprisingly. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, it is a reminder on one hand for to take risks that, you know, nothing's gained without risk, uh, you know. But it is also, for me, it's about being comfortable with failure as well. So that's something that I've probably struggled with early in my career and, and probably hampered a bit of my progression and uh, held me back a bit was that, I, I didn't really live up to that motto in Who Dares Wins because I was fear, fearful of failure mm. and, you know, the reputation damage and everything that, that followed with that. So would avoid doing certain things or getting involved in certain activities or whatnot because I just didn't want to fail, so I'd rather not do it. So, yeah. so it, they go hand in hand, risk-taking, but also if you're going to be a risk-taker, you need to be comfortable with failure and you need to be able to... Uh, you know, use it as learning experience and, and, and recover, fail fast and recover quick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, that's kind of what it means to me. Mm. Awesome, man. Beautiful. I love those two points. Reminder to take risks, be comfortable with failure, the two that have just that really stand out. And I love the way that you've articulated those. Mate, is there anything or anybody that you want to mention? Maybe it's your lady, maybe it's the work or anything like that. Is there anybody that you'd like to make take time to specially mention at this time um, before I wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned the distillery enough, so I, I, I probably shouldn't say <laughs> more. But, uh, yeah, you know, I obviously have to give huge thanks to my partner for allowing me to do all this stuff. I still am away a lot like as in not at home so I have to yeah I would have to acknowledge her Uh, but also I just want to give a shout out to everyone that I served with like um, all my brothers that went away with or or even if I didn't we didn't go away together Uh, you know and guys like Harry Moffat I know we've talked about him a bit but definitely you know he was one of my patrol commanders I did a couple of tours with him so I learned a lot about leadership and, and life in general from Harry. So, How'd you go on the cricket? Sorry, how'd you go yeah, on the cricket? Yeah, I'm not great at cricket, to be honest. <laughs> and, yeah, but uh, Harry's all over it. He loves it. Yeah. No, so guys like that, um, and there's probably many others that are still serving or, you know, that I, I um, can't do justice by sort of listing them, but they're, yeah. you know, just... To give a shout out to, to everyone. It's, awesome. uh, it, Beautiful. You know, made, it made me who I am today. Yeah. Work it, man. 
Thanks so much, Ryan. It's been an absolute privilege to have you on this podcast. We'd love to, down the track, have you on again and see how, how much more growth. Maybe you're the CEO of something by then or the, 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 the distillery or whatever that is. But, mate, we wish you nothing but success and ongoing success and happiness, especially for you and your family and also in the work that you do and the lives that you're striving to continually impact in positive ways through your service. So um, appreciate you, brother. Thank you very much. Mate. And as always, we sign off with Who Dares Wins. Thanks, Joe.